You guys will forgive me if I don't take my shoes off. <laughs> oh goodness! Oh goodness! Well, um, last week we uh, we started out and uh, we began a series on John three sixteen, um, and so we're going to continue that series, um, and we're just going to kind of see where God takes us. If you guys do take notes um, at the top of your header, I want you to write. All of, and then a blank. Um, praying about what we wanted this series to look like and what we, God and the Holy Spirit were leading us to get out of this series. Not just you, but what God was communicating to me that I should learn even as I'm teaching this series. And one phrase kept coming to mind. Um, each week, we're going to go further and further and the series is going to be five weeks long, and each week is going to have a different point. And the point will be all of, for example, last week was all of grace. That being born of the Spirit is all of grace. So at the conclusion of each week of this series, you will be able to say one of five aspects of what being born of the Spirit is. So before we start this, uh, I want to go ahead and begin with the word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to come in front of your people. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to put forth your word and to teach your word, Lord, as you have taught me. And Lord Jesus, I don't take this honor or this privilege lightly, but Lord Jesus, it's a huge burden. And Lord, I cannot carry it, nor can I put it forth unless you give me the strength and the ability to do so. And God, you know my heart. My heart is to be effective and not eloquent. My heart is to communicate a truth that can be applied to their lives so that they may grow, so that they may grow deeper in relationship with you, so that they may live the word out in their everyday lives, that they may be doers of the word and not hearers only. Lord Jesus, that they may put that word into practice, that they may proclaim that word, and that they may feed, feast, and find rest in that word. Lord Jesus, bless this morning. Bless this word. And Lord, give me the strength and the ability to put it forth in a fashion and a manner that is acceptable and pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So before, um, if you guys want to go ahead and turn over to John 3, I'll be there in a moment. Before I do that, I want to um, go back and labor a point that I began to labor about why we're doing this. Um, and I want to read a couple verses from Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to turn there. Um, but basically in verse 24, Jesus begins telling a parable of those who built their house on a rock. And everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Notice that he says the rock, not a rock, but the rock. Definite article meaning a specific rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against it and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks a question to his disciples. He says, who do men say that I am? And they say, some say that you're Jeremiah or that you're a prophet or that you're Elijah or that you're that prophet. And then Jesus looks at him and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, 
impetuous, impulsive Peter opens up his mouth and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus looks at him and says, flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you, but God. And he continues on to say that you'll no more be named Simon, but you'll be named Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church. The rock that he's talking about is not Peter. I know the, uh, the Catholic Church and some of you that have a history and back, uh, they believe that Peter was the first, um, my mind just went blank on the word, that Peter was the first in a long line of popes and that he was the rock that they were building the church on and each person that steps in in the office of the pope is now the rock and he's the, um, man, that word is escaping me and it's driving me crazy. Hmm. That he anyway holds the keys of death and hell and the grave and he fulfills the role of Christ on the earth. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying upon this rock, upon the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the rock. So we're right now trying to fulfill this parable and establish a foundation that we can build this house, God's house on, that when the storms come, when persecution comes, when testing comes, when all this random theology comes, when all of these people from all the different cultures, because this is kind of like a melting pot of cultures, when you got New Orleans and voodoo and hoodoo and a strong Catholicism basis, and then, you know, especially with the modern age and the millennials up and coming, I can say that because I am one up and coming, they have all these different philosophical ideas and um, Scientology and all these different things that are going to come against that rock and they're going to come in the form of a storm, winds and waves and attack and whether it be subtle or strong or whatever it may be, but it's going to come against the house and we have to have the house built on a rock, the rock, Jesus Christ. The house that was built on a sand. Does anyone know what sand is? It has a couple different origins. Here's your oceanography reference. <laughs> it has a couple different origins, and one um, makes sense theologically with where we're going. The other does not. It's just for fun, just your random fact of the day. The one that makes sense theologically that we're going to preach is that rocks or sand comes when water and wind and erosion beat on rocks, they chip off the rocks in little pieces. So you have fragmented rocks that make up the sand. So the house that was built on the sand, in essence, is a house that was built on fragmented theology. It's a house that's built on religion without foundation. It's a house that's built on all of these theological ideas, but no solid founding. So it's kind of essentially what a lot of these new groups are pushing forward where they have different aspects of the Bible that they're holding on to, but they want to merge the Bible with something else. And so they'll pull away parts of the Bible so that it can fit them. A famous quote that I was actually talking to Chrissy and Barrett about the other day, and I actually mentioned it on Wednesday night. A famous quote is, in the beginning, God created man in his image, and now we have returned the favor and tried to make a God in our image. It's essentially this house that's built on the sand is essentially these people that are coming forth and they're taking the parts of the Bible that they like, the fragments of the rock, and they're trying to build a kingdom on it. And it's not going to stand. Why is it not going to stand? Because anytime any new wind or wave comes to increase in that aspect of erosion, they're going to throw more stuff out and pull more stuff in. That's why it's so imperative that we have this strong foundation. That's why it's so imperative. Now, the fact of the day is that the other way that sand comes is from a fish called parrotfish and it eats coral and then when it processes coral and the th algae that it eats through its body it passes it as sand 
So there's your random fact of the day, your oceanography reference. <laughs> so last week I made a comment about us potentially not understanding John 3.16 and what it's actually referencing. And I did that through telling a story of a time I got in a debate with a friend of mine. And my friend used John 3.16 to try and push forth the idea that you had to go to church on Saturday and that if you went to church on Sunday you were taking the mark of the beast which is nowhere found in John 3.16 or in its context but this is a well-educated man and so it made me realize that we can no longer take it for granted that everyone just understands John 3.16 we have to actually explore that we have to make sure and we can no longer assume that people just know what John 3.16 means so going from that, I want to look at, again, just a brief overview before we begin what we're going to get into today. The brief overview would be that the context where we find John 3.16 is in the midst of a conversation where Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and asks him a question. Jesus makes a statement, a statement about being born again. You can't see the heaven or enter the uh, kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. And Nicodemus asks, how can a man be born again? Can he go into his mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, you're talking about being born of water, a natural birth. I'm talking about being born of the Spirit. So the question that's being asked is, what is being born of the Spirit? That's what Jesus is answering when he brings forth John 3.16. And he does that by using the scripture reference from Numbers 21 of the bronze serpent. The bronze serpent being the serpent that Moses fashioned so that the people who were being bit by those serpents in the desert and being poisoned and dying, they could look on the thing that was killing them and be healed. And so essentially Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then it goes into verse 16. Essentially what Jesus is saying is sin is killing you. Your sin has poisoned you and you are dying of poison and it's going to kill you. See, a lot of times, Faith and I, we watch a, uh, a law enforcement show called Blue Bloods and they use the terminology likely or not likely. Like somebody's likely if they're going to pull through, they're not likely if they're going to die. And they use that because it's, it's more of a cop terminology so people around them aren't necessarily going to pick up on what they're meaning. So it's kind of showing a form of respect. In military and in some medical professions, when somebody is dying and they are coming upon that death, they may refer to them, and they do it in a famous movie, Iron Man, they refer to them as the walking dead or being dead already. And that's essentially the picture that the people who were dying of the bronze serpent had. They were dead already. They were already poisoned. They had no chance, no natural chance of survival. And we, without Jesus, are dead already. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead, and we have no chance of survival apart from Jesus. So what he's saying is just as that happened, just as they were poisoned, just as they were dead already, and they could look upon the lifted up bronze serpent, if when the Son of Man is lifted up, you can look on him and you can find healing. Isaiah 45:22 says, Look on me, God speaking. Look on me and be saved. And there's many famous preachers that have preached this in various ways, and they say, 
how hard is it to look? Anyone can look. It doesn't require hands. It doesn't require feet. Anyone can look. And you don't even have to have natural eyes to look on God because He's invisible. You look with your heart. So as long as you're alive and you draw breath, you have the ability to look on God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you're famous or a nobody. It doesn't matter if you're sick or well, if you're young or old. Anyone at any time in any place can look on God and be healed and be saved. So this is essentially the question that we get when we get to John 3.16. So beginning this week, I want to actually begin to break down John 3.16, the verse itself, and start dissecting it so we can understand not just the context, because I think we have a solid grasp of the context. I want to break down the verse itself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. I am reading the English Standard Version, and I still put believeth instead of believes because I have quoted and memorized the King James Version so much. I'm surprised I didn't put a thee or a thou in there as well. Um, I want to look at the first two words, because so often and so easily we just read over things. For God. It is so easy for us to just read by, and we're, we're wanting to get to the meat of the verse, so we're like, for God, so loved. And we're like, oh yeah, God loved. And we don't ever just acknowledge the first two words. For God. Do you realize that the three-letter word God is one of the most powerful words that we have the ability to say? Everything that that encapsulates. I mean, I was watching, I say I was watching, I have watched a lot of TV the past few days. I am ashamed to say. I was watching Blue Planet with my children. And that's not where I got the fact about the parrotfish. I got that from Splash and Bubbles on PBS. <laughs> I was watching Blue Planet with my children because Asher just loves animals. He doesn't even like the cartoon animals as much as he likes seeing the actual wildlife, the zoo, the aquarium. He loves it. We're watching Blue Planet, and it starts off talking about a blue whale and how big it is, that its tongue is bigger and weighs more than an elephant, a fully grown elephant, that its tail is the size of a small airplane and that it weighs hundreds of thousands of pounds, and it feeds off the smallest, one of the smallest creatures on the earth in krill. Thinking about that, the smallest animal on the earth, one of the smallest, not the smallest, but one of the smallest animals on the earth and one of the smallest in the ocean, krill, is what supplies and brings sustenance and nutrients to the largest animal that has ever existed on the planet, period. Well, except the Leviathan, and we don't know what that is. But anyway, the arguably the largest animal that's ever existed on the planet, period. Not to mention it's one of the fastest swimmers in the ocean. And thinking about this, thinking about how that creature lives and functions, and then we go to the turtles who lay their eggs on the beach shore, and they travel when they hatch, they make it to the ocean, they travel hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and then at the same point in time every year, all of the turtles that have eggs to lay all over the world come to that same spot at the same time of the year and lay their eggs and no one knows how they know to do it. And they do it for sheer survival because if they didn't have all of those eggs laid then the predators would kill every one of them and they'd become extinct. And no one knows how they do that. And then we can go to the to space and we can look at the expanse of the universe that people believe in infinity even though they don't believe in eternity and we can look at how many if the earth was the size of the golf ball and how many golf balls it would take to fill up the sun or to fill up the state of Texas comes close to the amount of times you could fit the earth and the sun or whatever that expression is 
The point I'm making is God designed all of it. And we sit here and we'll pass over for God and we just pass it over. We're passing over the most majestic word in the entire Bible and we don't even realize what it is. I mean, it says of God that He designed the heavens. Isaac Watts says He designed and made the stars and knows every one of them by name. He designed it all. It's, he's the high and lofty one. He that inhabiteth eternity that sits upon the circle of the earth. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He who is, who was, and who is to come. The same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the Almighty God, Sovereign Lord of the universe. And we can pass over that word. I mean, He's Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Jehovah Sidkenu, our righteousness. Jehovah Mikadesh, the Lord that sanctifies us. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Raha, the Lord our shepherd. Jehovah Rapha, I'm sorry, Jehovah Raha is the Lord our healer. Jehovah Rapha is the Lord our shepherd. And it goes on and on and on. El Elyon, the Most High God. Elohim, God. Jehovah, the self-existent one. He's God. And we pass over that word. And we don't truly grasp it. Tozer has a quote. And he says, What we think about God is the most important thing about us. What we think about God. So if I say God is, the first thing that comes to your mind is the most important thing about you, is what his quote is getting at. For me personally, I have to ask myself, and it's actually in the Alliance Life magazine this month, but the gentleman that puts forth the editorial, he says, I have to ask myself, what do I actually believe about God? Not what I think I believe about God or what I would like to believe about God or what I profess or say that I believe about God but what do I actually believe about God ask yourself that what do you actually believe about God do you believe that he's merciful and loving or do you believe that he's harsh and judgmental do you picture God as this entity with a lightning bolt in his hand ready to strike you down maybe God with a mallet running around waiting for you to pop your head up so he can hammer it back down? I mean, what picture do we actually have of God? For me personally, I asked myself this and I meditated on it over the last few days. And the one singular thought that is has continuity all through every time, and the first thing I think and realize about God is that He is sovereign. That to me is the one aspect that no matter what I'm thinking about, it comes back to the fact that God is sovereign that He is almighty, that He has no equal, He has no prequel, He has no sequel. There is no other God, there is no other rock. He even says, I looked for another God and I found none. He calls Job out and he says, Job, where were you at when I formed the, the heavens and the earth? Where were you at when I told the snow where it needed to be stored? Where were you when I told the oceans that they could come this far? Where were you at? There's no one like God. So for me, it's His absolute sovereignty and how majestic and how wonderful He is. How holy, how much different He is than what we are. For me, that's what encapsulates all that I think about God, first and foremost. Now, everything else that I think about God, every underlying factor, comes back to that point. Yes, He's grace and He's love, but He's sovereign grace and He's sovereign love, meaning His love is so much more powerful, there's so much more to define His love than what we can understand. 
I don't understand all the functions and all the ways that he goes about operating in the world today, but I understand that it has to filter through his sovereign love. Everything comes back to that. When I think that he's merciful, yes, he's merciful. He's sovereignly merciful. He's first and foremost, the highest, the biggest, the baddest. So why did, why did I choose to start here? Why did I choose to start and to just take a minute to just talk about how awesome and how holy and how otherworldly God is, how different from us He is? Jesus says when He's teaching in Luke, He says, you don't need to fear others. You don't need to fear men. Yeah, they're going to persecute you. They're going to come at you. And I'm paraphrasing what He says. You don't need to fear them. All they can do is abuse you and kill you and afterwards they have no power. He said, you need to fear the one who can not only slay you, kill you, but can afterwards take all that you are and cast it into hell. That's the one you need to fear. And I'm sure that everybody has heard this verse mentioned before, but the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It actually is mentioned a lot, and we'll just run through a few. The fear of God will prolong our days, Deuteronomy 6.2 and Proverbs 10.27. The fear of God gives us confidence and refuge, Proverbs 14.26. The fear of God tends to life, Proverbs 19.23. The fear of God makes us to depart from evil, Proverbs 16.6. The fear of God brings riches, honor, and life, Proverbs 22.4. The fear of God is a treasure, Isaiah 50, or 33, 6. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and of knowledge. That's Proverbs 2, 5, 1, 11, 10, 1, 7, and 9, 10. The fear of God is a fountain of life, Proverbs 14, 27. And Ecclesiastes 12, 13 says, The end of the matter, after everything has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So... If you ask me, and I know that some people may argue every single one of those are Old Testament scriptures, but the truth of the matter is, is it's based on a statement that Jesus says in the New Testament. And Paul can elaborate some of the fear of God in the epistles. But I chose to use these because they say it straight out. The fear of God is. The fear of the Lord is. The fear of the Lord will. But Ecclesiastes, Solomon, preaching. After everything is done, the end of the matter, the conclusion is to fear God and to keep His commandments and that's the whole duty of man. So if you ask me, fearing God is pretty important. Having a proper understanding and healthy fear of God and I'm not just talking about reverence. Yes, reverence is a huge part of it. Yes, God is holy and we should revere Him and we should come to Him humbly with honor and respect understanding who it is that we're coming to. But I'm also talking about just the outright fear of God, understanding that He's something so much different. Paul Washer uses this illustration, and it's kind of funny, but it's actually a good illustration. He says, If I was walking through the woods alone at night, where the moon is kind of half shining through the clouds and it casts that eerie kind of shadowy glaze where there's just enough light to be scared to have the heebie-jeebies, if you will, I'm sure all of you have been out at night. Maybe you're taking the trash out and there's just enough lights where you can kind of see but you can't. Maybe it's a little bit foggy and a cat knocks over a can and you about jump out of your skin. Everybody 
I don't care how big and bad you are. Everybody has had those experiences before. We all get spooked a little bit. But anyway, he said, and I say I come through the woods and I come out into this huge open clearing. And I have a choice in this moment. I can come face to face with an eight foot tall barbaric giant trying to kill me. Or I can come face to face with the Martian who's also trying to kill me. Which one would I choose? And Paul Washer says, I would choose the eight foot tall barbaric giant of a man trying to kill me because he's something like me. I can understand what his capabilities are. I know what he can and can't do feasibly. But a Martian is something different than me, so I have no idea what it's capable of. I don't know if it can teleport or transport, uh, transform itself into some poisonous entity. I have no idea what it's capable of. So that brings more fear than the eight-foot-tall barbaric man that's trying to kill me because I know what he is. Even if he's bigger and badder than me and stronger and more dangerous than I am, I know his limitations. I don't know the Martians. And so I would choose the man every time. And the point is this. We have no idea the actual ability of God. We know some parameters that Scripture has set forth. But the parameters that Scripture has set forth are limitless parameters. He is all-knowing, omniscient. He knows past, present, future. He knows what's in your heart, what's in your mind, what's going to be in your heart and mind tomorrow, what was in your heart and mind yesterday. He knows every motivation and intent that was backed up every single choice that you will ever make. He knew what the devil was thinking before the devil ever chose to be prideful and try to rise up against him. He knew what was going to happen in the garden when the devil came to tempt Eve. He knows the end of it all. He knows how everything's going to happen. He is omniscient. There is nothing that is hid from him. The next parameter is he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. There is no power that is contained for him. The actual word almighty means all might. And Jesus says, all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. So the Father, God, not only has all power, but then He chose to bestow all power upon the man, Christ Jesus. The next is He is omnipresent. He's everywhere. David cries out, where can I go to flee from your presence? Will I make my bed in hell? You're there waiting on me. If I ascend up to the heavens, you're already there. If I cross the sea, I'll find that you're waiting on the other shore for me. There is nowhere that I can get away from you. God is everywhere at once, all present. A famous theologian was once asked, Is God transcendent or imminent? Meaning, is He so far away and so other than? Or is He right here in your face? And the true answer is that the God of the Scriptures is both. He's so far other than, so much different, so far away, inhabiting the cosmos, making His throne in the third heaven. He's so much other than. But He's also right here, right now in your face because He's omnipresent. And the last parameter is He's omnibenevolent. And this is one that people have debated about and they will continue to debate about. But God is all good. Everything that He does is good. Romans 8.28 For God works everything for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Fear God and keep His commandments is the whole duty of man. Now, I want to briefly 
I say briefly, I don't know how brief it'll be, maybe. I want to look at the word for, and I want to turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to do a little bit of work because there's a big point that we're trying to make here. We're going to go Romans 3 verse 9. subheading no one is righteous verse 9 what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin as it is written none is righteous no not one no one understands no one seeks for God all have turned aside together they have become worthless no one does good not even one their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. I wanted to come here for just a moment. It's impossible for us to truly understand how good something is and how good God is unless we properly compare that and contra contrast that to how bad man is and how depraved men actually are. If you've ever listened to any Calvinistic teaching, they compare this all the time so you could pretty much preach from this point on the depravity of man versus the goodness and the sovereignty of God. And the reason that I do this is because if you have a flashlight, say you have a super, super powerful flashlight, and you go outside at noon on a bright, cloudless, sunny day, and you turn that flashlight on, how much light are you going to see? Barely any, if any at all. But if you go out and it's pitch black and you turn that flashlight on, it's going to light up all of your surroundings. The point that I'm making is this, is that sometimes we have to put the brightness and the light of God against the blackness of man to truly understand how good God is. Alright, you're already in Romans, so turn a few pages and go to Romans 8. We're going to start in verse 1. It may or may not sound familiar to you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How's verse 3 start? For God. Sounds a little bit like John 3.16, doesn't it? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now here's where we're going to get to the crux of the matter. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. What was Nicodemus's question? How to be born of the what? 
spirit. You're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Several different times it says, but if Christ dwell in you, if the spirit of God dwells in you, um, through his spirit who dwells in you. See the difference between a natural birth and a spiritual birth. In a natural birth, something's coming out of something. In a spiritual birth, something's coming into something. In a spiritual birth, the spirit of God is coming into us. Not something coming out of us necessarily, although the things will be forced out of us once the Spirit of God comes in us. Sin, the desire to sin, lust, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those things will gradually and progressively and sometimes some things will be immediately pushed out once the Spirit of God comes in. God does not share His temple. However, the essence that I'm saying, those are references to sanctification and we'll get to that. But the essence of what I'm saying is the spiritual birth is not about something coming out of you, but about something coming into you. It's about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus coming into you. The reason I pointed out verse 3, for God has done. John 3.16, for God so loved that He gave. And we'll get into the rest of that verse, but the point is for God and for God. God is the initiator. For is a word, and it has, if you pull up the Merriam-Webster dictionary, it has about 500 different meanings of what for can actually mean. But this for, in this instance, and I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's specifically designated to the action of initiating something, of making something set in motion. For God. God planned it. God pushed it. God designed it. We have this picture, and it's a common picture, of the sovereign father sitting on his throne condemning mankind. And it's almost like we have this picture of like him raining down fire from heaven on mankind. And Jesus like jumps in the way. He's like, no, I'll save them, Father. Several people have even written books about that. It's this image that Jesus defends us from the wrath of the Father. But here in John 3.16 and here in Romans 8 verse 3, we can see clearly that God was the one who designed it. The Trinity is not in conflict. God didn't condemn us and then Christ save us. God, can, we condemned ourselves because we loved evil rather than light if we follow the context of John 3 down. God designed an avenue through which we might be saved for God. God initiated it. God saved us. God planned it. The redemption, the whole plan of redemption, the whole plan of salvation, everything that is included in that is designed and set forth and propitiated by God. For God. Not for man. Not for me. For God. He did it. He designed it. He set it forth. He initiated it. And He saw it through to its completion and conclusion. So, remember at the beginning I told you that to write on your paper all of blank. The point for today, all of, maybe you can fill in the blank, what? All of God. All of God. Last week, we, we realized that being born of the Spirit was all of grace. This week, all of God. It's all of grace, and it's all of God.
the challenge for this week is for us and for me I, I won't say that you guys have fixed skulls I'll be nice for me the plan is for me to get it to my fixed skull that it's not about me it's about God redemption the plan of atonement salvation every it comes back it's about God it's all about God the Bible's not about us the Bible's about God it all comes back to that one drastic point and the problem that we so often have is we read the Bible and we're like what can God do for me God's done things for you but why did he do those things for you because of his love but what is it about his love it's his love that he's putting forth so that he shows his love we're the apple of his eye because of his desire we were made for His glory, for His pleasure, to worship Him. That's the whole purpose. So when we commit sin, R.C. Sproul said, when we commit sin, it's cosmic treason. When the devil rebelled, it's treason against the design of God because everything goes back to that central focus of God. He's like our solar system. We orbit and revolve around Him. It's all about God, not about you, not about me. And if I could just get that through my thick skull, because I have such a problem. When anything happens, I'm like, oh God, I'm not preaching good enough. Oh God, I didn't spend enough time in prayer. Oh God, I didn't worship enough. God, I could have sang that song better. And Lord knows that's a lie. It always comes back to me. It always comes back. To, I always bring it back to me. Like, God, I must, I must need to fast. I must need to pray harder. And all of those things are good and all of those things are required and they have a purpose. But the point of the matter is, is sometimes it just falls into the sovereign will of God Almighty. We plant, we sow, we water, and we reap. But the results and the growth and the increase all come back to God. It has to be God. If it's not God, it's not going to happen. So the challenge is, is to get out of the way. Let it be about God, not about you. So the point, all of God. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I just ask that you would sink this into our hearts, that you would sink this into our minds, that we would wrap our heads around the fact that it's all about you. All of you, all for you, all by you, all through you, all about you. Jesus, you are high and lifted up, and we exalt you here this morning. Thank you for your sacrifice, for your provision. Thank you for making a way when there was no way. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for shedding your blood for us. Lord, I just ask that while we lay this foundation, because the truth is, is that there is no other foundation but you. You're the only foundation. Any other foundation is sand. And Lord, let us build this foundation upon the rock of you. And understand that it's all about you. You are the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All authority and power in heaven and earth were given to you. Lord, bless these people as they go forth. Lord, I pray that everyone has a prosperous, a healthy, and a restful week. I pray that things are accomplished. I pray that moves are made in the kingdom. And I pray that people have the opportunity to share their faith in small or large manners, whether it be planting a seed, watering a seed, or potentially even reaping the harvest and leading someone to the Lord. I pray that everyone has an opportunity to share their faith and to show themselves faithful followers of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.